0: Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost, the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy to use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange traded funds, Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty
1: secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back
2: or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode one twenty four. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management. Rich Diaz, his McGill shirt on. What's the story
1: with that shirt? Well, I'm, I'm working from home, uh, and I didn't want to put on real clothing. It's really. Did you go good there? Answer. I did go there. I nice, there. Smart, smarter than I thought. Yeah, I know. I'm smarter than I look too. Uh, I yeah, I did McGill economics and finance. Um, did the there. honors program. It kicked the absolute living shit out of me. Um, It was fun though. I learned a lot. Um, I learned that almost every model that you've ever been taught doesn't actually work, (laughs) which is, uh, but no. And I learned that I'm not good at calculus. But uh, no, I love McGill actually. I played, I was uh, one of the captains of the ultimate frisbee team. There you go. That's my claim to fame. Yeah, I was big time into that. And I smoked a lot of, uh, uh, of shrubbery, let's say,
0: <laughs> okay, all right, it's all coming, it's all coming home to roost, yeah, that's right. Keith, tell us about your uh university days 50 years ago,
2: yeah, it was a long time ago. The uh, my I was really good at going to a place called the Breezeway Pub, so that's where you you know, you got your A in socialization, but uh, that's yeah, you know, met Ice Cap, uh, no. That Would be pre Mrs. <laughs> Ice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to school in Newfoundland, so uh, like later on, you left here. But you notice, uh, for everyone who's not being able to watch it today, if you're viewing on YouTube, Rich has a real nice, sharp haircut that matches. No, I, did. I forgot I, to mention that. I, the, I, I thought that. you got, yeah, I thought you got, I thought you went to the uh, the hairstyling faculty at McGill, that's why you got the t shirt that no. matches the, the you look good today Looks thanks. good rich
0: yeah new camera new hair fresh t-shirt yeah, man fresh you're t-shirt. just uh you're dialed in these days thanks
2: man oh speaking
1: so that affords me the opportunity to give my friend a shout out a listener to the Looney hour a loyal listener i'll say we actually went to high school together his name is viral and he owns a mexican uh, restaurant um i'm trying to find the street i think it's on notre dame east called Le tequila bar And so, hi, Viral. Thanks for listening. And everyone, if you're Montreal and you want some great Mexican food, hit that up. It's awesome. There you go. Are
0: we shout out all of our old high school pals? Keith, how many of your guys are still alive there, buddy?
2: (laughs) One thing that's great about the world, you know, I chat with everyone and you try to stay in touch with everyone. And uh, like every day, you know, I walk Willis every morning and I go by this, uh, like this, this elementary school. So the crosswalk guy is there you know, one of the guys, you know, they work for two half an hour shifts a day. And, uh you know, this is a new guy, and, I'll probably, and I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? What's your name? And I chat him up every morning. Uh, but my point is that I think I'm the only guy that chats with him every morning, he sees me, his name is Joe, I don't think he's following the podcast. But you say hello to everyone. And then Years go by and decades go by and you bump into an old high school friend or college friend or workmate or anything. And so be nice to everyone. Stay in touch with your network and you figure out what everyone is doing. Further to answer your question, I think we have a big football trip planned this this uh fall. We're gonna go down to Miami with a bunch of Sweet. friends my, uh, You've yeah. You've recovered now, eh? We're gonna be like the five on coolest people, uh at South <laughs> Beach. I can promise you that. But uh, yeah, okay, Steve. So what do you have us set up for today? How are we looking? Yeah,
0: well, we've got uh, quite a bit to work through today. We've got uh, I got an update on national house prices. We've got some data from uh, from Korea there. We got Canada's CPI inflation data, which came in pretty soft. We'll get through some of that. Uh, we've got some interesting data just on on uh, foreign purchases, Canadian equities. You know what's going on there european banks so there's, there's lots going on right now uh we got nvidia that's kind of keeping the whole market afloat but uh so we'll get into all of that of course but we do have a special guest today uh that i want to frame up so we got really playing on the the whole canadian space you got canadian agriculture uh so sean haney uh he runs a uh site called real agriculture also uh basically it has a canadian podcast and radio show covering uh Canadian agriculture which uh, is big amongst the farming community so we figured we'd get him on the show to to enlighten us about what's happening in the world of Canadian agriculture which plays such a vital part uh, of this economy and you know what's going on with you know carbon taxes you know crop production etc so let's jump over to that interview right now with Sean Sean welcome to the show
3: Hey, it is great to be here. I've heard a lot about this podcast, and you guys are doing a great
0: job. And it's uh, it's great to be a guest. It's awesome. Yeah, well, re- we appreciate you coming on. Uh, your name came up quite a bit when we reached out to our our Looney Hour community here uh, about who to interview in the agricultural space. You know, someone that was uh, educated, knew their stuff. So, for those of you that are maybe not as familiar with you or your background, can you give us like a quick elevator pitch on on kind of who you are, really, and what you do?
3: Yeah, well, I, I, I'm i somebody that uh, always wanted to be in broadcasting. Uh, I wanted to be in sports, though. Um, that clearly did not work out whatsoever. So I, I chose the uh, the niche of agriculture. I grew up on a, uh, a mixed farm. We had a feed yard uh, as well as a seed operation in southern Alberta. Uh, I had no intentions of going back to the farm, but uh, still ended up there. It sort of sucked me and drag, drug me back in. And uh, I started real agriculture as really a hobby. You know, I was doing as moon, I was moonlighting and, you know, writing at night and I kind of, you know, I, I started sending out a weekly email to 300 contacts I had in my phone and it kind of just snowballed and, and really grew from there. Pretty soon I hired a video producer and uh, now I think we got about 13 staff uh, across Canada. We're mainly focused on the Canadian prairies and Ontario as our as our main geographies for the website, in 2018, really kind of took the full plunge, and we sold our what well, we had left of our seed operation, and went media person full time. Um, host a daily radio show on Sirius XM, uh, do a Saskatchewan radio or terrestrial radio show on ROLCO on the weekends. Uh, right throughout the week, record podcasts, do videos. We kind of try to do as much as we can, and we, you know, because of the XM component, we're talking to audiences across Canada as well as the U.S. on a daily basis. So I, I have honestly one of the best jobs in agriculture because I, I get to see it through so many different angles and lenses. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah.
2: How question, do, you, do you? go you, ahead, Keith? Well, yeah. Have you ever sit, you're going spend some time in Saskatchewan as well.
3: That that we do cover Saskatchewan, yes.
2: Yeah. Ever come across Warren? Warren is one of my friends out. That way. Oh, man. ignore
3: this guy. I, I know Warren. <laughs> you know, I had one time where that where somebody said to me, Hey, uh, oh, I was in Spokane, Washington, and they were like, Oh, hey, do you know my f- my friend John? Like, I, I don't know, Canada's a big place. Uh turned out I did know John. I played <laughs> hockey with his brother, it was the weirdest thing. Um, so
0: yeah, it sometimes works out. John with the farm in Saskatchewan. Great yeah. guy. Yeah. Um what what is the what's your current view like on the on the general agricultural space in Canada? Uh would you say would you quantify it as as thriving? Is it going through complications? I mean there's obviously a lot of uh you know policy decisions that are coming down the pipe as well. Just kind of curious your your general view of it today. I know you have the the sentiment index as well uh in the farming industry so maybe if you want to kind of chat on that.
3: Yeah, I I would say how I would describe it as easily as possible is belt tightening. Um, You know, we're we're coming off a number of years here where basically since the fall of 21, where commodity, you know, commodity prices were just like a they're like a hockey stick. Right. And if you look at Southwest Ontario, where yields have been fairly good for those three harvests since that moment, farmers have done really well and. And, and that's the reality of it. And they don't really want to brag about that and talk about it too much, but they, they have done fairly well, especially if you compare it to somebody like an entrepreneur that say owns a restaurant or a local hardware store, farmers are doing a lot better relatively speaking. What we have seen is the commodity market has really rolled over. If you were to pur- pull up a, a chart of corn or soybeans or canola spring wheat, you're going to see the same thing. It's going to be this big slide downwards and, uh, at the same time, costs necessarily, they've retreated, but they necessarily haven't come down as as much as the commodity prices have. And so I would say if you look at 24 right now, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of belt tightening. Farmers unsure about their margins, uh, feeling a little bit worse about their current farm financial performance. And we saw that in our January intake of our Canadian Farmer Sentiment Index on a scale of 200. You know, farmers, I think they were like in an 87, which is, you know, below 100, the neutral line, also feeling negative about their future farm financial performance, you know, in terms of how will my farm, how does it look financially out 12 months, also negative. And maybe to kind of really set the perspective of where farmers' mindsets are. And I think there's some political overtones here to pushing this number lower. But when we ask farmers in the next five years, will we have widespread good times, widespread bad times? I think it came out like at a forty-four and a two hundred, and so I think that really sets the stage for where farmers are right now. But I, I will say this: like I said, the, it, there's a lot of political overtones to that. A farmer's not on the same page with the current federal government when it comes to a policy per you know policy perspective.
2: Yeah, I definitely uh, want hey, to get she, into that. You have a question for you, Sean? With uh, I, I read, the, I read the report from from January that came out. But uh, maybe to help everyone appreciate a bit, a bit more, and myself as well, how far back does this survey go? So, with so, for example, I think you mentioned the uh, the expectation going forward like forty four or forty five. I think you yeah. said then next five years has has that been it? Have we reached that level before? No and... new loads
3: going back to September. Of, we started this in September of twenty two. So, my partner Justin Funk and I in Real Agri Studies, he's out of Guelph. Um, his his company is Agri Studies. We, we started this in September of 22. The idea mirrored and emulated the Purdue University CME Ag Economy Barometer that Purdue University does. And I always wanted to have something where, like, we in Canada, we are experts in extrapolating U.S. data and, and taking that U.S. data and applying it to ourselves and saying, this is exactly how it is here, too. And in some cases, that's the truth. And it's that's real, you could do that. But in many cases, I, I think it's not. And, and so we wanted some Canadian data about Canadian farmers and ranchers across the country. And so that's that's how we got kind of started. What well, we're seeing in current farm financial performance, future farm financial performance, uh, overall outlook for the ag economy next year to five years, it's, it's record lows since September of 22 across the board. And the real trend that you see is the highs were January of 23. So going back a year ago, a year ago at this time, farmers were they were optimistic. They, you know those numbers were above 100 on on farm financial performance. And now they they're, they're in the negative. and, and, and basically it's, it's following that commodity market downwards, right? It, if you overlaid those two things, that's what you would see is they're tracking very, very closely to each other.
0: Are are these, a lot of these Canadian farmers, are they as, as levered as, as everybody else in Canada in terms of, you know, interest rates? And, you know, is that is that impacting a lot of these farms? I, I mean, I'm just genuinely curious, is this, uh, how this is impacting the farming industry?
3: Well, there's a lot of farm debt out there. Um, you know, if you look at the, the, the book for Farm Credit Canada, it's a substantial amount of money. RBC World Bank is another that has a substantial amount of money borrowed to Canadian agriculture, just to name, you know, two of them. Um, you know, there's farmers have, and it, with, with all of this, there has been an increase in the value of land. Land has been a very good place to put your money. And uh, farmers have known this for the past 20 plus years, as they've seen land values increase uh, substantially across different parts uh, of the country. People have borrowed on the increasing value of the land in order to you know, buy more because it's a really, really good investment, especially at a time where interest rates were, were you know, historically low over a long period of time. And everybody remembers the 80s. Uh, a lot of our my audience references it all the time. Um, but that's a long time ago. And, and you know, we, we've been living in this low interest rate environment. I, I, I think what we have seen with interest rates going up from our surveying is farmers not feeling that the interest rates are necessarily really, really impacting them today? But as they start to renew mortgages and they start to, um, you know, uh, maybe look at buying that piece of equipment, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa! What is the interest cost? Right? There's that, and and we're seeing kind of the same sort of thing happening in the residential uh, housing market a, as well. So I think some of the the real hurt financially is yet to come when it comes to uh, some of those, those interest costs, but yeah, there's a lot of farm debt out there. Um, and even in places where you wouldn't think, like we talk a lot about, you know, supply management and dairy, you know, when I talk to people in that sector, they are highly levered, highly, highly levered, even though there's steady, you know, there's steady flow that's always coming in. Um, so yeah, agriculture is not, uh, there's not, not a lot of
1: debt-free operations out there. Um, Sean, can I ask you a question? Um, just like related to interest rates, and I guess you mentioned investments in new equipment. Um, one of the things I've noticed, and maybe erroneously, but one of the things I've noticed is the kind of ad- adoption of tech, you know, uh, in the farming industry. And we we think a lot, when we think of tech, we think of AI and computers. No one ever thinks about it in engineering uh, in terms or in energy space. But what I've seen is a huge adoption of of technology. In, especially for large farms can you just touch on that and how much of a I wouldn't say revolution maybe that's too strong but has right. there been a change in farmers sort of willingness or or likelihood of adopting that so the huge adoption of tech okay and, and if, can you can you explain sort of what that might mean in in, in your world so
3: and and I don't think it's a change I, I think it's it's been there I think the types of tech that were people are adopting on the farm that has changed but you know, when, when new technologies come out, especially in the quest to find efficiency, right? Technology related to efficiency and productivity. And if there is a a clear path to determining there's an ROI to this, not like, hey, this is really cool tech. Uh, That would be awesome if I could have that. Like, look at the size of that monitor, that's amazing. Not that kind of stuff, but like tech where it's like, hey, that actually did save me time, you know, money per acre, however, whatever calculation you want to do. Farmers have shown that they're definitely willing to, to adopt. Um, I actually think this is one of the, one of the reasons, or one of the mistakes the federal government's made in some of their climate initiatives is they've, they've led with, you know, farmers should do this because of the ideological piece of it and not led with like, Hey, actually, if you adopted this tech, it's actually increasing your productivity, it's increasing your ROI, and the side benefit is actually good for the environment. But they, the, the feds have not been capable of, of phrasing it that way. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the examples that comes to mind all the time is things like uh, no-till, you know, where we're putting a seed in the ground without disturbing the soil or as, as minimally as, as possible. It reduces things like soil erosion uh, due to wind or to, to, to drought. Um, you think about some of the like tech in the sense of you mentioned AI uh, scripting of fertilizer rates. Uh, people even doing variable seeding. Like some of the tech on farms is is really really insane and blows you away in comparison to even where we were like five ten. Never mind like twenty five years ago. Right? Like I was at uh, I was at Agrotechnica in Germany in November. And which is like the largest farm show they have every two years. It's the largest farm show in the world. There's like 500,000 people that go over the course of a week, people from all around the world. And the amount of of robotics and autonomy is just it, it's it, it blows you away. And some of it's kind of futuristic, but a lot of it is like now. And in that, you know, in that example of autonomy, it sounds really cool. But there's also a component where it deals with the fact that we have a huge labor shortage in agriculture. Yeah, that's right. Can't find labor. And so I, I think like one of the major solutions is not like, yeah, we can try to attract more people in, but that's a competitive, look at the em, unemployment rate. It's a super, super competitive environment, especially as Canada potentially backs off immigration. That's not going to actually help. We heard the the uh, immigration minister say a couple of weeks ago that they want, you know, they think Canada is too dependent on temporary foreign workers, which is like, ridiculous from, you know, from the standpoint of agriculture, that's like, oh boy, you don't get the problem. Um, I think the industry is going to have to really double down and triple down when it comes to trying to incorporate autonomy and robotics and and things like that. No different than an auto plant has, if you look at it over the last 25 years.
0: Yeah. What Just, about temporary foreign workers on uh, how, how prevalent are they in the agricultural space?
3: Oh, very. Uh, I don't have the numbers to tip my tongue, but if you look at in the fruit and vegetable industry, you look at uh, like mushroom farms in ontario uh, vineyards uh, the packing plant industry um they they're they're like they're they're needed they're a requirement and there's a bit of a fallacy out there where like um it's it's being addicted to cheap labor um it, it doesn't matter what you pay some canadians to do some of this work they are not they're not sending in resumes <laughs> okay um and so then there's a reason why some of the temporary foreign workers, the TFWs come back year after year is because for them, this is, this is, this is a, you know, this is a pretty good deal too. We always we think about it um, kind of in a twisted way. I, I, I think that there's, there's really a really beneficial two-way street here. Um, it would be very like during COVID where the, the processing of TFW applications was like at a standstill the The fruit and vegetable industry was like in in real shambles, and wondering how they were actually going to get the crop off the field. Uh, you, those those workers are like a must. Crazy,
2: yeah. Let's uh, let's just go back a little bit to tie in um, your response to Rich's question about the technology and, and everything, yeah. and then lead lead that into earlier in the conversation, Sean. You talked about how the expectation what wasn't very positive going forward you know it yeah. seems to be quite negative from the farmers uh, so my first observation is I'm, a, I'm making the assumption that the adaptation and the the ramp up of of using more technology that should be positive for margins i would imagine in a very general sense correct yes it
3: yeah because it's it, because of the push towards productivity and efficiency
2: yeah yeah absolutely and i mean we we know prices have been a bit soft over the last what 18 months i guess or, or 24 months even so the for the outlook not to be very positive is that like what is that is it more from yields are declining or the prices are expected to continue to come down is it a margin game or is it really tied into your earlier comment about, you know, not not a lot of people in the industry are happy with what's coming out of the federal government?
3: Yeah, I think it's is. it's a it's a lot of all of like really it's a lot of all of that. So the you know, if you if you look at some of our open-ended responses we got in January, and if you take out some very uncomplimentary things that people had to say about the prime minister, you put those to the side for a second, we don't need to get into that. Tell us one. Give us one <laughs> juicy one. Well, there is there's a lot of F Trudeau. Um, there's a, there's a lot of that, uh, but the second place that people go is the carbon tax. And, and, and so whether that is a real cost that is pushing them into the red, or it's the perception of pushing them into the red, people are very, very much, uh, against this as, a, a, a they, they see it as really negatively impacting the industry of, of, of agriculture. And so there's, there's, I think the focus on that, that is like on the, that's on the pedestal of issues. And then you have things like fertilizer prices and fuel prices, like, you know, major costs for farms across the country coming down, but maybe not to the tune of how far the commodity markets have, have, have come down. And if you look at Western Canada specifically, we're in year four or five, you know, four last five years have been drought. Right, and so there's you know if you you've got high costs and low production because of Mother Nature you know not cooperating you you feel like you're you know that that's why that that sentiment is low what what's interesting is that there's no difference between the East and the west, you know statistically speaking on the outlook currently. It's just you know farms and ranches across the country feeling negative about their their current financial performance and future. And that's the shrinking margins, you know, like somebody I I was doing recording the radio show earlier today, before we did this and farmer told me like, Hey, I'm cutting out canola. I can't, I cannot make money. Even at $13 canola can't make it pencil. I'm growing more corn. So those are the kind of decisions right now that farmers are, are, are going through trying to, you know, find ways or a path to, to some, you know, to live, to fight another day, so to speak that that's kind of the year that it's shaping up to be is what do I need to do? Tighten my belt. I got the, I can control the costs. What crops do I need to grow or how much of each of those crops do I need to grow where I can
1: live to fight another day? Um, Sean, can I ask you another question? Just touching on that a little bit more. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the carbon tax is one thing, but can you just can you just articulate how important um ammonium nitrates are for the fertilizing process? And, you know, not that you should get into the the harbor Bosch process invented, I think, in the 20s or whatever it was. But but just I don't think people realize the degree to which fertilizer has improved crop yields in Canada globally and is a systemically important to our way of life. And can you just touch on that just a little bit? I know maybe that's not your specialty, but it's it's not. but,
3: But in generalities, absolutely. Like if you're if you're sitting down with a beer on a weekend with a a buddy from across the street, and that buddy's like, you know, agriculture would be a lot better without fertilizer. You need to take that bottle and whack him across the side of the head. Like that that is the most that is just insanity. Fertilizer is absolutely critical to agricultural production and some of the yield gains that that we have seen. Okay, and and we have seen activists and we've seen some people and some of those people are actually inside the government talking about fertilizer like it is evil and it's the you know it's it's the enemy and it's it's creating environmental hardship and all of these kinds of things it is fundamentally critical for farmers to produce the yields that they are producing in the current cost structure and what you know the price of land has been and all of those kinds of things now it doesn't all have to be synthetic fertilizer. There also can be, you know, uh, livestock-produced fertilizer as well, like manure, which, you know, a lot of farms are 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 using as as well. There's a lot of focus right now in the uh, biological space and the, you know, trying to create more. Um, Uh, EEFs, enhanced efficiency fertilizers to, you know, so we don't have so much nitrogen loss when the product goes in the ground and trying to you increase the productivity uh, there and farmers um, and not having as much emissions go into the air when it comes to farmers using fertilizer. Um, And and I think a lot of times what's happening is this is being crafted into like an all or none scenario. Like life without paying attention to the unattended consequences. Yeah, if all of a sudden we said tomorrow you can't use fertilizer, our emissions would be lower, but there would be like this list of huge unattended. Com- exactly.
2: <laughs> I, huge- I would. I would imagine the price of everything is, is going to go what, One x, two x, three x. Oh,
3: it would, it would, it would be to. a disaster. It would, but
1: it Sean, be- Sean, fertilizer is expensive. Yes, it is very. Yeah, and 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 when we talk about technology and efficiency gains and and margin pressure that these farmers are under, do these farmers waste fertilizer? well that's the miscon- so exactly
3: this is what farmers say to me all the time it's like with how expensive it is you you, you, I, you think i'm just going to be like a recreational fertilizer like i'm just going to go <laughs> there and just sort of like hey love spreading fertilizer it's the same <laughs> it's the same when we get into comments about herbicides and pesticides where there's this narrative that you know farmers are overdoing it they're you know they're they're spraying these crops because some multinational company has their thumb on them and is forcing them to do it well, come on. Let's think about this. Um, these farmers are running a business, and they're not—they're not using more fertilizer than they than they than they have to, or they have determined that they need to. Now, is there room for improvement? Well, absolutely, there is. Like, yes, like this is not a perfect industry, and that you know that the industry is pushed for our—you um, know, right place, right rate, you know, right amount, all this kind of stuff. Um, and there's an education that goes with that, but for this the the whole talk about the government talking about this thirty percent emission you know emission reduction related to fertilizer. one of the reasons they've been unable to make it mandatory or really push it past where they wanted it to be is because of the pushback and 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 the government or in the industry people educating the government on if you do this, here are some of the consequences. be careful what you are actually doing before you move any
0: further. It's just. And- can you walk us through that just in terms of, you know, again, just pretend I'm a typical Canadian here. I I don't follow the space that well. Um, I may be less inclined of knowing what's happening in, in parliament. Are there any particular policies for you that really stand out that are currently in discussion or have recently been tabled that you say, wow, like the, this one or these two policies Are really every Canadian should be aware of, and they should be chatting with their MP because these are going to have you know these ramifications. What are the what are the big couple policies that you think people should be aware of? Yeah, I think there's two.
3: Okay. So first of all, we have and you referenced it earlier to bill C two thirty four. Okay, this is the bill that would give an exemption to farmers on the use of propane and natural gas. Uh, exemption on having to pay the carbon tax on the usage of propane and natural gas for ag-related things like grain drying, heating your barn, all of those you know those kinds of things. And It has been you know is in the house. It got through as a private members' bill. The the shenanigans in the Senate. It's now back at the House. Uh, they're dealing with the amendments from the Senate. It is really and, and on on the you know following the exemption that Atlantic Canada got on the heat pumps. This has been a real sore spot, a real burn in the saddle for agriculture about how they've been treated relative to, you know the, some of the, the the political reasons why Atlantic Canada got that exemption. Um, so that that is what because the whole idea here is we're going to put a a, a tax on on certain activities to try to force people to use other options, okay? In, in the case of something like grain drying, there are no other options. There are not, there's no solar powered grain dryers. There's no, you know, wind powered grain dryers. You can't, you know, put a, a blow dryer.
1: <laughs> What's that? <laughs> a blow
3: dryer. A blow dryer, yeah. Well, that, that would, that'd be a long process. And, but there are no other options. And so if there are no other options for a farmer to switch to, they are incurring this tax, this cost. Without other, any other options, they have no other options where We're to hold. It doesn't get passed through, though. It, 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 it's ridiculous. So that that is that's one. Um, and the conservatives, you know, when they when the parliament returned in January, Polyev was like, I, I'm actually surprised how much the conservatives have really got behind this and put some political will to it to try to push through on 234. They have the ag vote already. Um, I think it just kind of fits into the acts, the tax uh, messaging and some of the narrative. The other one is uh, Bill C-282. And this is the private member's bill related to, I I think this is kind of peak naivety in Canada. Um, This is related to Canada putting together, making a piece of legislation that it would basically prevent trade negotiators going forward to offer up any more access to supply managed markets. And and my my comments against this are not related to pro supply management against supply management. That's not the point. The point is is that I think you know this is uh, pro. The, this is people in the supply management industry thinking if we have legislation on the books, we're going to make it easier in 2026 when we have to renegotiate the USMCA Kuzma agreement to say hey. US you want more market access for dairy sorry we actually have legislation we 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 can't give any more access sorry like we would love to but you know what it's it's law and i, I think that is just when i talk to people in dc they the, the main comment or question i get is what the heck are you guys doing you're you're actually making it worse it's sort of like when you you tell your kid you can't have that cookie Right, or you can't play with that toy. What what does the kid do? They're like, Why well, I, I want to play with that toy even more because I can't have it. Right. Yeah. And and this is what I'm hearing on the south side of the, the the border is like this is not going to help. This is actually gonna make people come in with a you know, much more vigor to get the access that you say you they they can't get. And I just think it's it's the wrong way for Canada to approach the trade negotiation.
2: One more uh, question for you. I, I love this conversation, by the way. Um, can you talk a little bit about from what I see and hear and read? There's a lot of protests taking place over in Europe from the yeah. farming industry. And what the Canadian industry, what they think of that, and if there are any parallels or anything that we should be aware of that's happening in Europe that could potentially uh, drive our market over here. Yeah.
3: When, when the European farmer decides to protest, they they, <laughs> they pedal down, don't they? They're good. They're good. Wow. <laughs> like some of the some of the videos of spreading manure on like uh. government prop, like whoa, like um, Canadians will protest, but Europe goes like zero to a hundred very fast. The French are very good at protesting, though. To be <laughs> fair, <laughs> they are. Uh yeah. Um, so. I think the European protests are much more complicated and full of much more nuance than has been covered in the mainstream media. Um, There are, there are, um, every country has different reasons. Okay. Like it's not like all of Europe is protesting environmental policy by the government. That, that is true in the Netherlands. Okay, and and I'm I'm going to pick certain examples here. Um, to so the, the Netherlands, yeah, like they're trying to take land out of farming. They're trying to tell farmers they can't, you know, use fertilizer, like we've talked about. Uh, there, there is a you know water is a, always a major fight in the Netherlands, uh, and so that yeah, that's and so that's what people have latched onto. But then they've also they've applied that same reason across the entire EU body, and that's not the case. If you look at it in Poland. The major reason for some of the uprising has been the fact that they don't want Ukrainian grain coming into the country anymore because it's toileting prices. If you look at in France and Germany, um, maybe Germany first, then France, a lot of it has to do with government cutting back on subsidies. And, and I'll give you an example. So in, in I found this out in November when I was in Germany, is that for the past number of years, if you bought the best sprayer on the market with the, the best environmental controls, like all those technologi- technological bells and whistles, like it's, it's pimped out. You buy that sprayer and the government gives you a 50% check back to rebate you for that sprayer as a subsidy. That's, that is a major, major government program. And so the German government has been looking at trying to cut back on some of those subsidies. That's what those farmers were protesting against. Initially. And so what I've been saying is like, as a Canadian agriculturalist competing with Germany and France on the global market from a trade perspective, I'm cheering for those governments to cut those subsidies because they're making Canadian products less competitive. So... What what we've seen in some of the countries is different than the others, but it's been that there's a little bit too much nuance for some of the nightly news, and so some of that has been has been covered uh, as well. Um, what we have, I, I think, what we have seen is that farmers really do feel that they're under pressure. As we have seen, you know, I think that's the common thread, no matter what the reason is or what's enabled them to go out and protest. Farmers really, in the U.S. and Canada and in Europe, are really seeing pricing pressure that is squeezing those margins. And and let's be honest, it has been government governments in all of those areas have always looked at losing farmers as a negative more so than other industries. Like if, Absolutely. right. So if like, a, if we, if we started to lose, um, do we ever talk about like losing hairdressing businesses
0: or do we ever talk about bakery? Realtors, or, What's that? Too many of them, too many <laughs> realtors.
3: Right. We don't talk about that. But 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 we're like, oh, we're losing farmers like it's. And so farmers, farmers know that. And that's, you know, that's trying to push the government. Farmers are that's why they're doing the protesting is to try to get that government support.
1: Um, And so it's just 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 want to contextualize like so one of those uh, fancy, you know, machines is what half a million dollars. A million euros like a a, a combine with the new X nine or the new uh, New Holland uh, combine they unveiled in Germany. Is it like one point three million? Okay, just six. I think when you say like farm equipment, people have like a, you know, Bingo was his name. Oh, you know, like John Deere <laughs> lawnmower. Yeah, exactly. They think it's a lawnmower. These are these are sophisticated pieces of equipment with computers yes. and all kind GPS oh, and all yes. kinds of shit. Like, yeah, yes,
3: this has got more computerization, like well, your card is too, than you know,
2: yeah, stuff I that we sent used to send to the moon. Yeah, um, but yeah. they're not as sophisticated as the like the arrive can app and things like <laughs> that. I mean, let's yeah. get real.
1: That that isn't that something. Um, that, don't get I, this guy started. Uh, can I ask a, a, another more, <laughs> another question? It's it's um it's a bit sensitive. And I don't want to get in trouble, but I can't miss this opportunity. Okay, China, right? China, China's been buying up loads of land, uh, and they own a lot of commodity businesses in this country. I'm not a, adverse to foreign direct investment. I think it's a good one, depending obviously who it's from and where it's going, etc. Has that changed over the last little while? Has the government been reluctant to get involved? Have farmers been reluctant to sell? I mean, has that changed at all? In in terms of land? Yeah, in terms of land usage, what they're buying, how much oh, they're buying it, the influence that they peddle or not. Yeah, it's so China, China is complicated um,
3: and it's ugh. okay. So I would say this is in terms of Chinese land buying much more of a political hot potato in the US than Canada. Okay. Um, you know, in Arkansas, they're forcing Syngenta, which is owned by Chem China. You know, Syngenta has been in North America for a very long time. Formerly, Zeneca Agro and Novartis that merged. Um, they have a hundred-acre research farm, and the state government is forcing Syngenta or trying to to force them to sell it because it, you know, technically it's owned by China. That that's kind of crossing the precipice of like recently. You know, like reasonable um, ways to think about this, um, but in in Canada, I would say that we don't talk as much about the land buying. I think there's a little bit more anger towards Ontario um, pension or the Teachers Pension Fund um, in terms of buying land. Um, Saskatchewan has rules against um, some of this foreign. Uh, ownership of farmland, as an example, I I think one of the the hot potatoes for Canada related to China is trying to being against the way that China you know some of the things that China does on the world stage from a political standpoint what they believe in, but also it being such an important export customer.
1: Yeah, that's
3: right. And it's sort there's of, the rub, right? There's the rub, yeah, right? And so. And and Canada is different than the U.S. The U.S. can say a lot of stuff about China. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, you can talk shit about China because you're the largest economy in the world. And and there, you know, just as much as the China is very important to the U.S., it's it's vice versa uh, as well. Canada is not in that. You know, does not have that that ability because we are not the largest economy in the world. And. Our a lot of our strategy related to to China has been you know taught, you know on the back of the U.S. to assist us and and yeah. we saw how that all went down with the two Michaels and yeah. um okay. and, and the okay. CFO but okay. I, I, I think agric- this is going to be interesting for the if if Polyev wins the election this is going to be interesting there's going to be a lot of internal pressure you know we need to be tough on China. Way tougher than Trudeau was because he was wishy-washy. Nobody actually really knew what he thought about China or how you know how they should be uh, from a foreign foreign policy standpoint. But you can only talk so tough on China because you don't want to also hurt the the export potential. So it, it's a real, real fine line that I'm going to watch with interest to
0: see what changes when there is a conservative government. So speaking of that, as we get close to to wrapping up here, I want to be respectful of your time, but. Is there two things, like, I'm kind of curious, in your opinion, what is the biggest bright spot in Canadian agricultural? Where are you most optimistic on? And then on the flip side, what are you most concerned about? What do you think we need to be watching incredibly closely or or shifting gears on? Oh, um,
3: what I'm most concerned about is our willingness to do well, we need to, in order to seize what the opportunity would be like. I th- I think in Canada, there's like this, I'm really interested in this is like, oh, that's just Canada. <laughs> like in terms of like our attitudes and our behaviors, like we sort of have, we, we know that we have this vast amount of land. We know that we have this vast amount of resources, oil and gas, agricultural, we have, you know, uh, access to to both oceans uh, on each side of us, like we, the 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 opportunity from a trade perspective is is immense, and and also the ability to potentially have significant domestic processing to actually be exporting higher value products, not just raw commodities. Preach. The que- What's that? Preach, preach. Okay, okay. <laughs> I've struck a nerve. Um, the reality is, though, is do we actually have the will to seize that opportunity? And you know when i when I talk to people at some of the Canadian think tanks that look at our trade infrastructure, they say, you know, we do not have a strategic plan when it comes to trade infrastructure. Uh, we talk about shovel ready projects. That's like just because it's shovel ready doesn't mean it's strategic um you the transportation minister last or no sorry it was uh Guibau last week, the minister at e triple c saying we're we're good on federal roads what the or what like have you guys noticed that as Trudeau's fallen in the polls, the gibot just gets more says the more and more stupider shit like i oh yeah, we've been following very closely on this show, okay, okay, well, so that's my concern is is our our willingness to really, really invest in research to commercialize that research? Because this is what I'm hearing from the research community as well. Is that you know Canada's an idea place. We got a lot of ideas, and uh, but the trouble is, we get an idea, and maybe we you know we have something that would be a strategic advantage for Canada, and then Canada is incompetent when it comes to the actual commercialization of those ideas, and then we we basically we head south or we head to Europe or. You when know, those things aren't happening in Canada. So I, I think it's my biggest concern is our from a, outside of agriculture, but many different industries is our ability to want to really want and do the things we need to do to be the economic driver and the leader that we could be, because I, I think that
0: there's a gap. I think it's a good, good spot. Any, 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 any can bright spots that you think we're doing a good job on? Oh uh
3: I you know I kind of a minor one, but I, I think our current focus on the Indo-Pacific region is is I think very, very important. You know, this week uh Minister Macaulay for Agriculture and Agri Food was in uh, Manila where they're opening that new office with people on the ground. Um, you know, I, I think this is uh for a long time and naturally so because we're adjacent to the US you know it's like this is we got we have the greatest geographical strategy ever when it comes to trade right and we've learned um we haven't you know we're not saying we're not going to do business with the US there we're we're always going to do business with the US i think this or with the US but we need to diversify that portfolio and and focusing on countries like the philippines like india like uh vietnam uh south korea very very important and so i think you know that opening up that office is just
0: one example of the indo-pacifics a big opportunity for canada Awesome. Sean, thanks so much for uh, joining on the Looney Hour and um, I'm uh, hopeful we'll do this again very soon. Yeah, I would love to. This was awesome. Thank you so much. And keep up the great work, you guys. This is uh, this is a great podcast and uh, congrats what you've done with the Looney Hour. Thanks again, Sean. It was a great interview with Sean there. If anyone wants to learn more about that space, uh, check out his website, realagriculture.com. There'll be some more information in the show notes as well. And uh, hopefully we'll we'll have him on the show again soon because i think it uh the
2: natural resource sector is is very important here in canada of course you know what one, one thing you learn from the conversation with sean is that even though the farming uh industry you know they have all the manure you, you realize from the conversation that ottawa is the one that's full of shit
1: ah, oh, zinger there it oh is. god that's terrible <laughs> well, come
2: on rich come on <laughs>
0: Speaking of uh, full of shit, we had uh, some some data coming out from what one of Canada's largest retailers, Canadian Tire. Um, so there's a huge miss on the, on that sector, which is kind of what we've been tracking pretty closely here. So uh, yeah, Canadian consumer, big box retailer, Canadian Tire, my favorite store, reported a 67 percent decline in net income for the quarter, which included the uh, the busy holiday shopping season. There was an interesting quote from their CEO, Greg Hicks, uh, and he says, even with significantly deeper discounts, we aren't seeing incremental demand materialize if the intent of restrictive monetary policy was to curb consumer demand and slow the consumer economy, we would certainly say the policy is working. So he actually used the word monetary policy? He did, yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's also looking for rate cut. A lot of people asking for rate cuts right
2: now. Everyone <laughs> is. But in a way, if you think about it, the objective with tightening monetary policy, raising rates, is making it more difficult for households and, well, not governments, because they'll spend anyway, but for people to spend less. And, you know, we don't like it, but this is a good bottom-up example where it, it is working want to look at it that way
0: yeah and then we had uh well in the same time we have canadian retail sales so we have an advanced estimate for january which keep in mind this is definitely subject to revision uh the advanced estimate from stats is showing is showing canadian retail sales uh dropping 0.4 percent in a sharp spending pullback so i think we're starting to see well, I don't know if starting. I think it's been going on for a while. Rich, you've obviously flagged retail sales on a per capita basis, uh, just not good in Canada.
1: Yeah, that's that's what happens when you have a sort of balance sheet recession. I think a lot of the times we we talk we've talked a lot about sort of the um, very high debt levels, and that doesn't normally matter so much um, unless you have a housing bubble, which sort of hoovers up a lot of that capital. But also we talked a lot about um, debt service ratios and those debt service ratios, again, for uh, some of our longtime listeners, I went over this sort of how much um, debt, how much it costs to service the debt relative to your disposable income. And depending on, you know, who, who who calculates it for you, whether it's the bank of international settlements or if it's the statistics Canada, we're now sort of at a 25 year high. So, so, you know, um, or an all time high it's I guess, I mean, Um, I guess it's, yeah. So, and then, so, you know, uh, according to the Bank of, uh, sorry, Statistics Canada, uh, household debt service ratios are basically just over 15%. Um, And the lion's share of that jump is from interest rates. Because remember in Canada, we borrow at the short end of the curve. So that spike in the overnight rate has directly led to much higher debt servicing costs. Um, And that affects people's disposable income, what they're spending on. And that's why those bottom up Sort of examples, although they're not perfect. Naturally, Canadian Tire, um you know, I'm sure has other reasons why it may or may not be doing well. But clearly, it Go it, 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 it showed <laughs> I like Canadian Tire. I know you don't like Canadian Tire. I like Canadian Tire. I like that you can walk around and play with a hockey stick while you're shopping. I think that's one of the the key marketing points. But anyway, but anyway, the point is really that the bottom up sort of is is marrying that the, the top down to steal a, to a, a key, uh phrase. But um well, it's kind of interesting because i
0: think like you're you're seeing obviously you know the debt servicing ratio the softness in retail sales and i feel like that's now sort of filtering through this sort of consumer weakness as you call a balance sheet recession is seemingly filtering through into the inflation data because we had yeah. you know while last week we had this you know robust strong Sticky inflation in the U.S. That certainly wasn't the case this week in Canada. Um, you know, headline inflation was expected to come in at three point four uh, in January. It softened to two point nine. So, you know, it, it, a pretty big, pretty big miss. Um, you know, core inflation is showing. You know, while it's still elevated, it's showing some signs of, of easing as well. So, the Bank of Canada's two preferred core inflation measures both decelerated averaging 3.35% from a down, downwardly revised 3.6 a month earlier. So uh it feels like the inflation story in Canada is certainly not as, as prevalent as it is in the US.
2: Yeah, no, De- w- definitely not. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so what's great now though is that if you know, if you're sitting at the Bank of Canada, you're saying, "Hey, it's finally happening." And, you know, they'll attribute to rates rising and all that stuff. Maybe it's just the cycle, you know, that's, that's the way things are moving here. Uh, but the other really interesting thing is that, you know, we've we've gone from November, December, where everyone's expecting central banks around the world, to chop rates in half, you know, to be dramatic from five down to two and a half, something like that. And now, a couple of months later, with the Americans, they're talking about, hey, their next move might actually be a hike. The, the New Zealand they're talking about hiking as well and the challenge we have in Canada is that you know I know the mindset everyone has the mortgage renewal coming up and and all that stuff uh even though our data is getting softer we we shouldn't have the expectation that we're going to go back to this extreme world of hey we're we're cutting rates dramatically again because if we do that and the Americans stay where they are or raise rates, the Canadian dollar will come down, you know, 10%, 12 or more. And then what happens to inflation again, Rich, with, with that? It will go back up. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to, up.
0: Yeah, to that point, Keith, there's an interesting note from uh, a TD economist this week. And so he says the... Uh, the inflation problem in Canada is mostly a shelter issue to which he says, you know, 30% of the the shelter basket or CPI basket is shelter. And so he, you know, they know that TD is expecting shelter inflation to run at an average of 6% this year, which means getting headline inflation back to the Bank of Canada's 2% target will be all but impossible. So he says the rest of the inflation basket must have close to zero price growth for the Bank of Canada to get inflation down to 2%, which he says, of course, is highly unlikely outside of a significant recession. So,
1: um, you know, wait, I want to jump some... in there. I want to jump yeah. in. Number one, and he's obviously there. listening to our early episodes of the Looney Hour. So I'm going to just give us some props for that because we literally went over that math. It's basically linear algebra. So we went over that math early on. But I think the other thing that I think we should just be careful about is the creeping prices of energy. Which I know that there's core and there's headline, and and core excludes food and energy, um, but we're starting to see oil prices just tick back higher now, um, and and one of the big um, one of the main contributors um, is is air transport. Um, that was one of the month uh, one of the monthly contributors was air transport tours and other transportation. And those transportation numbers move with energy prices. And so it's uh, it's going to be interesting. Well, there's
0: people now that are making the argument, not me. It's not from the real estate industry, um, but from these uh, economists that are actually coming out and saying, they're scratching their heads and saying the Bank of Canada perhaps shouldn't be uh, using mortgage interest costs, or stats can, for that matter, should not be using mortgage interest costs uh, as a component in the shelter inflation basket
2: what so (laughs)
0: and and, and it's not me saying this you know this is this is this is now people are saying well this this doesn't make sense apparently rich correct me if i'm wrong um that mortgage interest costs are not calculated
1: uh in other cpi baskets and like for example the us i mean sorry i know keith you want to jump in but just quickly there's like 20 different types of CPI baskets. And so and I and I'm to give Tiff Macklin and my favorite Carolyn Rogers a little bit of credit here. They're not just looking at one number and making you have a favorite central banker.
2: (laughs) And it's not even the the lead central banker.
1: Oh, Carolyn Rogers. I like her style. That's That's his next date. That's deep, Rich. That's Um, really deep. Like, let's give these people some credit. There's the preferred measures. There's the common median trim. They exclude this. They exclude that. The fact that one of them includes mortgage interest costs and they're harping on this is dumb. They obviously look at a multitude
2: of different ones. So that's sorry, Keith, please. And that's that. That is accurate, and uh, as well though, it's it's irrelevant how they measure inflation, right? I mean, you know, I know that's not technically correct, but the point is, if if the cost of housing, whether it's what we're purchasing it or we're renting, you know, all that stuff it's still part of our everyday expenses as a household, as, as a family. So just because, you know, an entity, they decide not to include a component in the inflation calculation, to determine whether it's rising or not, we're still paying for it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's you guys, you know, what, what's the uh, one of the data points that one of the Americans came out with? Is it called true inflation or yeah. true inflation, something yeah. like that? Right. And people say, well, the, you know, the real rate of inflation, it's 12%, right? It's not, two and a half, and they should measure it at that rate. And right. I say, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct, but I don't think it's going to matter on what the policy will be. It's kind of like using, uh, what is on this spreadsheet, you know, goal seek, you know, try to figure yeah. out what the, the input number should be. So- but in the bottom line with Canada right now, you know, retail sales are slowing, inflation is slowing, the economy is slowing, per capita data points are not that positive like we we are on this slippery slope and hope is an awesome strategy you know in star wars and things but i'm telling you if we fall into a recession it's going to create havoc on bay street it's going to rip the soul right out of canada if that happens so let's so let's continue to watch the data here, Steve. Make sure that doesn't happen.
0: Well, yeah, there's still, a, like I said, there's a growing chorus uh, calling for rate cuts in Canada. So we had, of course, the CEO of Canadian Tire commenting on monetary policy. We had uh, the housing minister last week commenting on monetary policy, saying, you know, rates need to get down so they can make more construction projects feasible once again. And then we had uh, Prime Minister uh, J.T. and uh, the Premier here of BC, David Eby, did a joint press conference this week, uh, both chiming in on monetary policy, which is uh, highly unusual and perhaps um, not overly wise. But anyways, uh, some comments here from JT says, quote, we're optimistic that the Bank of Canada will start bringing down interest rates sometime this year, hopefully sooner rather than later. But that's their decision to make. Uh, And then you had uh, David Eby, who uh, was blaming, uh, central banks for quote, driving inflation up by driving up the cost of housing through mortgage interest costs, which can be passed through as higher rents. Very odd comment to make, mm-hmm. but uh, there. You uh, have it.
1: what a shameless, like, I don't know what that guy, what a shill. I, the rents are up because population growth is at a Forty-year high, as demonstrated by the Bank of Canada's monetary policy report. The BC government it's...
0: also has rent controls; you can't even raise the rent <laughs> unless a tenant leaves.
1: It's true, but vacancy vacancy rates are down. But just just in the interest of fairness, Keith, there's not it's not all bad. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting was the Bloomberg economic mood indicator for Canada is actually rising. That's like four weeks in a row now. So I don't know who they're surveying. <laughs> Economic mood indicator. Yeah, it's a consumer confidence indicator. It's a consumer confidence indicator. Um, Housing one, I think, is
0: up too. Yep. Yeah. That one's actually, honestly, historically, has been actually a pretty decent indicator of turning points.
2: Yeah. And yeah then, I think, uh, like I said, like let's see. I mean, what, what we need is, as an economy is for, we need it to stay flat. But well, let's look around the world again, real quick. Yeah. Let's go to Germany very, very quickly. Uh, we mentioned last week that uh, several of the German banks are starting to feel the effect of the American commercial real estate market, you know, coming off wheels. Um, you know, everyone looks at the stock market all the time to try to gauge the health you know, of, of something, but I like to look at the bond market. But one of the you uh, look the at Nvidia, is- Nvidia <laughs> that just goes straight up. <laughs> that's not even a, a chart like it's like a blast off. <laughs> but uh but more on a more serious because it, but it's interesting because that that's attracting all the attention you know today of course but if you look at one of the bond issuance from this German bank like the bond has, most bonds will mature at 100 for example and the price will deviate around 100 the whole time this bond has gone down to 60 cents so the bond has has declined by 40 percent for a bank. Like, that ain't good. That, that's a sign of some serious manure going on, right? And then, see that, Rich? I kept the farming yeah. theme. Yeah, right. cool. It and, smells. Yeah, you're into it as well. What do you think, Steve? <laughs> what would you uh, add on to that? Yeah, that joke smells. <laughs> kind of the same. But the German uh, Finman, their office came out, and they've downgraded their official forecast for uh, German economic growth for 24 from 1.3% down to 0. 02 which is, you know, they're calling for a, a soft landing. Notice they never call for a recession. No okay. one's ever estimated. Yeah, no one's ever forecast that's happening. But again, we have that happening. And in Europe, you know, the China story, uh, the, the Chinese story continues over this last week as well. But that caught my attention, uh, Steve, what was happening well, in I, Germany. I think it's a... I kinda of curious your guys' thoughts,
0: because I feel like it's just kind of this the there's this overarching theme that's developing on the loony hour, which is the US is seemingly holding up the rest of the world right now. Right? Like I think you can make a decent argument for rate cuts in Canada and parts of Europe and you know, rich perhaps the UK there and, and it just feels like the US you know, and you've got Larry Summers out, right? As Keithy mentioned now, saying, "Well, maybe the next move, maybe it should be a rate hike, not a rate cut." And so, like, are we potentially entering this scenario where the U.S. is not cutting, but everybody else is is wanting to or, or starting to? And what does that do in the FX markets?
2: Keith, this, this one's for or you. You sleeping? You're the sleep FX guy. I thought it was so easy. I didn't think I need to answer that one. Oh, okay, it's... big big man. Keith, well, I know you're, I know you're, uh, <laughs> No, but yeah, you're, but a noted, to be fair, you're a noted U.S. dollar bull. Yes, correct. So pre- present
0: your 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 bull case yeah. here.
2: I mean, just traditional, like academic books. People look at inf- interest rate differentials and, and stuff like that. So in in this scenario, if if the Yanks are raising rates and everyone else is either not raising or cutting, you know by default, you know, that the dollar goes higher, right? Uh, I think, though, the reason it goes higher, it, it's not for that reason. It's because we are going to experience uh, a severe financial crisis of some sort coming from somewhere else. And then that just, you know, drives more money in, into the dollar or the treasury market, you know, for safety and liquidity. That's the world that we're looking at. And again, you, you just look at the volatility we had with, Rate expectations over the last three months. You know, think about it. we're going from the Fed cutting by, again, just being dramatic. You know, by one and a half percent, to now there's whispers now they're going to raise rates. That's in a two month period. I would imagine once we get into the spring, we're going to have a pretty good idea of which economies are going in which direction, and I, I think we're going to see even more uh, swings in in markets. Which will not necessarily the equity world, but in the FX world and, and the bond market as well. Like this is exciting times. Like it, it, really is. It's it's a great opportunity, uh, you know, to to experience something different. Rich.
1: Well, the only thing I just wanted to add quickly is we mentioned it three three weeks ago, and it's just something people should just watch is not only the rate cut expectations, which, as Keith said, are sort of melting. Uh, melting away but just that inflation piece that's the i mean what's really fun is um in in our job is there's certain times where like no one really knows what to look at or what series is most important or um what data points like crucial and but i think going forward it'll just it's going to all triangulate on this CPI number that's going to keep going and the other thing i think is really important is the labor market um which to your point um steve is is been those two things, if you get decent inflation print out of the U.S. and the labor market in the U.S. just holds up, because remember, the deficit spending is completely insane relative to where we are in the labor market cycle. It's a chart we showed last week in the in, on Lunar. But if you have just those two things carry on, there's a case to be made that they can't cut at all. And this year before an election, and then that starts to get messy. And yeah, we're it's going to be interesting, I think, going forward.
0: Well, think about this this uh, Canadian tire guy, you know, he's he's stressed out right now. I mean, I dial it back to nearly 60% of Canadians with a mortgage haven't even seen a payment increase yet. Right. So, I mean, all these households that, you know, were thinking they were going to get. A whole bunch of rate cuts this year and you know come November 2024 are renewing their mortgage at you know 5.2 percent or or whatever it is at the time I think that's going to be a, a bit of a shell shock and a, and a further drag on consumer spending you'd have to imagine so it is a we're what, in, what is that happening this
2: year like is there like a, a summer period like a three-month period where you, you see that happening
0: Uh, no, I mean, there's, there's data on like this, they call it like, you know, the mortgage renewal wall. So 2024 is, is in terms of like overall renewals is the dollar volume is quite high. 2025 is even bigger. And then I think it starts to decline a little bit in 2026. So you can kind of just like look it up and go, okay, you know, the bull market for housing really like was 2020, but particularly 2021. And so think about all
2: those 2021 mortgages that took five-year terms. Those are renewing in 2026. And all of that is negative for the economy because it's going to take away money from household discretionary income, right? Yeah. That, that happens, yeah. yeah. You know, one thing to leave everyone with uh, down here in, in, in Halifax, I think it is part of the, the federal government housing accelerator program or something like that, but they are rezoning the whole city, Steve. Are they doing that now too? Well, they're trying to do it. So uh and it's again about to time. be, to it's be about dramatic time. about it. Like I live in a single family zoned <laughs> plot of land. Uh I I should be able to put up a five, six, eight story house on my property at some point soon. Wow. Great moving fantastic. In? The whole hey. city is going like that, eh? Like You can retire, you
0: know? buddy. You can cash out tomorrow. Big high rise. It's kind of tomorrow. funny, you know,
2: like everyone is, you know, you, you know, not in of my backyard stuff and everyone's upset. I was chatting with some neighbors of the other day and like, they are really upset about it. And I said, you know, like, this is not going to happen for 10 years. No, it's happening next summer. They're going to start building. And I said, are you kidding me? You couldn't get someone to do your kitchen renovation for the last two years. Where, where are they going to get this army of carpenters and contractors and builders to come in and, you know, do a Sim City build down there's there. There's gonna be, and uh, they're trying to do it everywhere else. I don't, I don't get it.
0: There's me. gonna be shadows in your backyard when you're trying to dip in your pool
2: there. Yeah, and I have that tin, that tin thing I put under my my chin. <laughs> I want to, I want to get an even, an even tan.
0: I love it. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh As always, guys, appreciate your support. If you enjoyed this uh this episode here, uh leave us a review on Spotify or Apple. Uh, Continue to drive us up in the algorithms there. And as always, we'll see you next week.